Amen. Well, I want to begin, and you can start with your notes here, but I want to say a few introductory things that this whole subject of David's tabernacle began for me as early as 1969. And what happened was that there was, you may or may not know this, but there was a powerful move of God in the islands of New Zealand. And at the time, Ern Baxter was of the opinion that New Zealand would become the first 100% Christian nation on the face of the earth. It was an amazing move of God that touched every community. And that little uh, pop, um, nation of not much more than 3 million people and 90 million sheep, by the way, <laughs> these three million people were so touched by God that they began to send out missionaries in, in a, a ratio that was higher than any other nation has ever done in the history of the world. And we were privileged to get some of these ministries come. One of them you will know because he lived for a while in America. His name is uh, Kenneth Connor. Well, he came as a young man. I remember him being in our little meeting room with his piano accordion. And in the early days when God was moving in that nation. And they came and they taught on the Tabernacle of David. And for them, it was liberation from hymn books to uninhibited praise, to learning to sing the scriptures, and to a new liberty in praise and worship which the church had not known for centuries. And it, and it was very powerful, it was very liberating, but it was at that time confined to the praise and worship dimension, which is a very important dimension. And I began to uh, think about these things ever since. And as the years have gone by, God has begun to speak to me about more and more dimensions of what it, this is all about. And as I'm sure many of you know, this is not the only place where this sound is being raised right now. I mean, Eileen just spent a few days last week, and I wanted to go, but I just could not go because of the demands of this week. But she went and spent a few days in Kansas City with Mike Bickle, who's a good friend of ours, and she was just looking at what they're doing there, and it's absolutely phenomenal. And then I know of and have met certain men in the Western nations of Africa where there's another dimension of this going on, which is there they're seeing the incredible power of praise and worship and staying in God's presence maybe for days and sometimes weeks. And then people get healed in a way that we've never, I've never seen before. Total reconstruction of bodies that look like they're gone. And, and I realize that, that what God's saying is he wants all these dimensions to come together. And as I started to ponder all this and, and, and long for it, and I felt this burden of God to teach it, I said to Eileen, this will be somewhere around about um, June to July of last year, if I, if I remember correctly. And I said, look, when I teach this, I want to go straight in to a permanent practical demonstration of what we're going to teach. I don't just want to teach it, I want it to become manifested here in the city of San Antonio. And the interesting thing is that the moment I got the vision, God began to make the provision. Until we were ready to do it, God did not provide the facilities, and now that we are prepared to do it, these amazing facilities will soon be available simply for a center of prayer and for a full-blown demonstration of the Tabernacle of David. And you're going to, I'm going to show you later on that I've now identified nine different dimensions of David's Tabernacle. And we're going to have all of them working right here in these facilities, and I tell you it's going to it's going to shake this city and have impact across the nation and the nations. I'm absolutely convinced of this because it's, it's something that God is doing. This is not a man's thing, this is a God thing. This is not a new methodology, it's something that God's saying he wants done. But what I believe should be your attitude is that just like myself, I the teacher, as I got prepared to teach this, God said to me basically, I don't want you to teach it, I want you to practicalize it. And I feel that from your side, you've got to say, well, we're going to listen carefully and we're going to receive what God has shown Alan and he'll probably add things to you that I haven't seen yet. 
but I want your heart to be, well, we're going to go and do this in our city. I think it's on the third day I'm going to share with you a vision which we had while I was in the Balkan countries. In all places, it was in the uh, Sarajevo, the capital of that war-torn nation of Slovenia. And there in that desperately needed situation, God gave this incredible vision and gave me all the scriptures that explained the vision. And I began to see in a new way how all these pieces fit together. And I'm going to teach you all that. And I believe that we're going to see that happening in Europe. I believe it's going to transform those God-forsaken nations. I mean, Europe is in a desperate situation. And it's only the raising up of David's tabernacle which is going to bring the transformation. I believe the needs of America are different. We're more, I would say, in more a Laodicean environment. But it's still God's answer because the words that are quoted in the New Testament, the words of Amos in chapter 9 and particularly verses 11 and 12 where he prophesies that this tabernacle is going to be raised again, Amos spoke those words in a situation which is very, very similar to where we are in the United States right now. They've been going through a time of, of sort of God um, con consciousness, but now as they prospered in every way, their God consciousness was getting blunted by the, 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 the pleasures of material success. And then God began to strike the nation with a series of of, I wouldn't call them judgments, but just little slaps to call them back to their first love and to their first priority. And the book of Amos, and Amos was prophesying at the same time as the prophet Isaiah. That enables you to fix it. About a, a, uh, BC 755 was when Amos began to prophesy, just about the same time as Isaiah, when um, and you get this good king, he Hezekiah, come on the scene. And it's in that context that he prophesies. And as I was reading those scriptures again this morning, I realized that, man, this is such an up-to-date picture of where America is right now. And I believe when this is raised up, we're going to see tremendous transformation in our cities. So now, having said those few words of introduction, I'd like to turn to scripture and I'd like us to come to Acts chapter 15. I'm not going to read this whole passage, but we'll be reading really from Acts chapter 15 and looking at various verses from one, chapter 1 right through to the, to the end of the chapter. Particularly up to, well, up to the end of the chapter, verse 33. Now, this chapter, Acts 15, is recording the first major crisis in the church which took place about 20 years after Pentecost. And what had happened was this, that the, after, on the day of Pentecost, the disciples came out of the upper room. It had a powerful and profound impact upon the city of Jerusalem. Now, you may or may not know this, but let me just remind you that during the years of the ministry of our Lord Jesus, in the city of Jerusalem, he taught his greatest teaching. He lived his glorious manifestation of the very eternal life of God. You could actually see, touch, hear, look intently upon the very eternal life of God. What a fantastic opportunity. He did his mightiest miracles in Jerusalem. Lazarus was raised from the dead in Jerusalem and this rotting corpse came to life and walked out of the tomb alive. Now, while Jesus continued his three and a half year ministry of amazing miracles, of incredible teaching and living the most incredible life, you'd think that the whole city would turn to the Lord. How could they resist him? How could they resist his works? his words or his life. It was like a threefold bombardment of that city 
And yet the facts are, at the end of three and a half years, he had a committed church membership of about 120 people. Because he wasn't doing any better than you're doing. <laughs> and, and the only response to Lazarus being raised from the dead was a plot as to how to kill him. Now the reason was because demonic principalities were ruling over the city and Jesus was fulfilling a purpose. His purpose in that three and a half years of ministry was, was manifold. There were several aspects to it, but one of them was he was fulfilling his role as the last Adam to take the sin of Adam's race and pay the perfect sacrifice for it at Calvary. But one of the things that he did was to demonstrate what the life of Adam could have been if he had lived in the same obedience that Jesus lived in. What you have to see is that in that earthly life of Jesus, what we see there is totally obedient humanity functioning effectively within the kingdom of God. Although he was almighty God, we know that. Although he was the fullness of God dwelling bodily in him, for the purposes of righteousness, not for one second did he draw on the power of his own deity, but he lived by the power of his human spirit. Does that make sense to you? So the way that he lived was to live in perfect obedience to the Father and to give his humanity in perfect submission to the Spirit and to the Father to use. Now what we see in those three and a half years of ministry is the power of obedient humanity. We see the power of Jesus on earth living the way the first Adam could have lived if he had never made the decision not to step into sin, but to step out into independence. That's what he decided to do. And when you see these things, you realize that the worst sin that God has to deal with in the church is actually the sin of independence. Because that's the sin that leads to all other sins. If we lived like Jesus, we would be as impregnable as Jesus to the devil's attacks. And that's the truth. Now, what Jesus was not able to do at that time, because he had not yet risen and ascended, his authority, he tells us several times, during that period of fulfilling the role of the last Adam, his authority was on earth. Now, you need to hear this because there's some confusing teaching going around right now. There's a period which is often quoted as being permanent, but it wasn't permanent, it was for three and a half years. Jesus, because he was fulfilling the role of the last Adam, his authority was on earth. He says, I have power to forgive sins on earth. I have power to heal the sick on earth. And during that three and a half years of ministry, while he was fulfilling the role of the last Adam, he did not get released by his father to attack the demonic principalities and powers that were ruling over the city and destroy them and pull them down. And that's why, for three and a half years, although we see these great miracles, although many demons were cast out, it was a battle with as many counterattacks, as many failures as there were successes. The political environment at the end of his ministry was worse than at the beginning. Amen? Would you agree with that? The temple had deteriorated because they'd resisted his word. They became more corrupt at the end of his ministry than at the beginning of his ministry. So the official religious life, the political scene, and the moral state of that nation was worse at the end of his ministry than it was at, be at the beginning. Although they'd seen many people healed, although large crowds would come to the healing meetings, that didn't mean that they became his disciples. And when he told them a simple commandment to stay in the upper room until, until the only 120 people obeyed that. And while that situation obtained, there was no transformation of the city. There was just a small church was established. And really that's where many of us are right now. But all the time that this was going on, Jesus was expressing his frustration. You find several times in the Gospel of Luke particularly that he expresses his frustration. He, he can't bear to be the only one, so he gets, if you like, 
credit from the Father to release the 12 and then the 70 into this battle. It increases the number moving in the power of the kingdom, but it doesn't significantly change the situation. In Luke 12, he particularly expresses his frustration in verse 49 when he says, he says, I have come to set the world on fire. And how frustrated I am because I can't yet accomplish it because I have a baptism to be baptized with and I can't wait for that baptism because until I am baptized with that baptism, I can't fulfill my destiny. He's of course referring to the cross. He refers to the cross in that way several times in the scriptures. And he knew that when he came to the cross, one of the great outworkings of the cross is that the demonic principalities would lose all right and authority through the sin of Adam to have any control whatever ever, over any part over the face of the earth. At the cross, he not only paid for our sins, but he bought back from the devil all the world and all of God's creation. His, his redemption didn't just save humanity, it saved the world and all of creation from the curse of Satan. Amen? Amen. So once Calvary was was, was a fact, then he had a double right of rulership over the whole earth. He had the right as a creator and he had the right as the redeemer. The great theme of the kinsman redeemer, which I think I dealt with in the school of the word on the kingdom. Now that's something you have to understand. So he couldn't wait really to go to the cross and then having risen, he's now exalted to the right hand of the Father, the risen Christ the man, Christ Jesus, risen from the dead, to him has been given all power and all authority in heaven and on earth, and now he's in a position now to deal with the demonic princes' principalities. And what is also so glorious, which I did cover pretty thoroughly on the school of the word on the kingdom, I explained the law of heredity, of how you and I, even before we were born, even before we came into any kind of physical existence, God had foreknown us and had placed us in the loins of Christ, so we participated with him in all those glorious acts. I was actually there when they crucified Jesus. I was in him. And the Bible is very, very clear to teach this thing, particularly the book of Ephesians and the book of Colossians. So when Jesus rose and ascended to his throne, I was carried in him to that same amazing, exalted position to rule with Christ in heavenly places. Now it's a different ball game altogether now. And from those heavenly realms where to whom Jesus the man has been exalted by his resurrection and we have been exalted with him by his resurrection to rule with him now those heavenly places we now have all authority and all power over all principalities all demons everything that dares to defy the advance and the establishment of the kingdom of God now the early church got that truth and it, I believe it came to them by revelation in that 10-day waiting upon God in the upper room. In many ways, if you think about it, as I've been pondering this these last few months, in many ways that upper room was, had some of the dimensions of David's, David's tabernacle, but not all the complete dimensions. And there in that time of prayer and intimacy, God was dealing with all sorts of things which become very evident because the people that came out of the upper room were totally different to the people that went in. They went in divided. They came out united. They went in fearful. They came out as bold as lions. They went out not understanding all the teaching Jesus has given them, but they came out with prophetic insight to understand and proclaim the truths which were passed from the knowledge realm to the revelation realm. They went in powerless, they came out powerful to do mighty signs and wonders in the mighty name of Jesus. Nothing could stop them, nothing was going to stop them. And as a result, in two years, the city of Jerusalem was assaulted by, if you like, the first imperfect, incomplete manifestation of the tabernacle of David. It just had some of the dimensions, but it was still incredibly powerful. The 
historical facts are this, that within two years, one-third of the city of Jerusalem was converted to Jesus Christ. A city of 60,000 population had 20,000 members of the church now. It went from 120 to 20,000 in two years because they began, to, if you like, to touch the edges of the power of the tabernacle of David. Now you begin to hear where we're going now. It wasn't a complete revelation, but it was, a, it was enough to, to, to bring this incredible transformation. So think what's going to happen in your town if you get the revelation. Think what's going to happen in your town when the same power is released into your community and into your region. I don't believe God wants just one or two manifestations. He wants every major community to have the power of David's tabernacle clearly established in it. And that's why you're here for this week. I'm here to impart teaching which will bring you to the place where you go home and do this. But in that first city, Jerusalem, we see the impact of what happens when these truths begin to be obeyed. As a result, the power went out across the Jewish community. The Jews at that time, for some reason, had not heard the words of Jesus go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. They stayed within the Jewish community and it accidentally spilled over into the Samaritan community by the time we get to Acts chapter 8. Philip the Evangelist went there and saw mighty and amazing things happen. Then we find in Acts chapter 10, we find a Roman centurion, a God-hungry Roman centurion, is seeking God and has been seeking God for some time. He's already become, it would seem, very, very drawn by the Jewish religion, but even more powerfully drawn by the person of Jesus Christ. Peter is sent by an angel to preach the gospel in the house of Cornelius to a, a group of complete Gentiles, something which had never happened before. And if you read Acts chapter 10, you sort of get the feeling, Peter says, I don't know why I'm telling you people these things, because this is what God is doing for us Jews. That's, that's what he says. And God's visited us Jews, and he's done this wonderful thing to us Jews, and I don't know why I'm telling you Gentiles, because you're outside the camp. And as if the Holy Spirit got so frustrated with this, in the middle of Peter's message, he falls on these Gentiles, and they are anointed with the Holy Spirit. You read it, it's exactly the text there. If you read the Greek, it's even stronger. Because in the Greek, Peter's talking to the Jew, to, to the Gentiles, about what God is doing for us Jews. You know, I'm just giving you a little bit of information, although it's got nothing to do with you because you're not one of us. And the Holy Spirit says, Peter, get out of my way. I'm going <laughs> to gather these into my kingdom too. And so the Spirit falls on them, just as he did at the beginning. And Peter comes to this amazing revelation. How, listen to his words, how can we forbid them? Why should you want to forbid them? How can we forbid them that they should be baptized, who have received the Spirit just the same way that they did? It seems to me that God's going to receive them as warmly and as lovingly as he's received us Jews. Absolutely right, Peter. Now this began something. Then the gospel began to flow over its boundaries into the Samaritan world and into the Gentile world. And God found a God-hungry people ready to respond. But this produced problems. Because these, as you notice in the, the notes here, you can see I'm not following it line by line, but I'm just giving you the truth of the thing. These new non-Jewish believers, this is still on page two, had received the Holy Spirit just as the first disciples on the day of Pentecost. They were full of life and power. They overflowed with joy and love for the Lord Jesus. Amazing and powerful miracles were taking place. They had had no previous contact with the Jewish religion and they had no background or understanding of Jewish history or traditions. Now this created a problem. What are we going to do? And we're going to have to face this, you see. What happens if God visits your Pentecostal church, your Baptist church, your Vineyard church, or your charismatic independent church, and comes with a whole bunch of people who don't know your ways, or particularly want to adopt your ways. What are you going to do? So we're going to have to, you see, in our church, we all wear ties and suits on Sunday. Well, that's nice if you want to. 
but it doesn't make you any more holy, does it? What are you going to do when all sorts of people start coming in? Suppose they've got green and purple hair, and they've got earrings and nose rings and eyebrow rings and things. Where are you, you going to start? Say, well, look, you can't come in until you get all that stuff off and you put on a suit, get your hair cut. I mean, I agree, I'd like to see that happen. <laughs> but, is that, but where's the priority in these things? Now you can see the problem. Here's all these Gentiles coming in, which were as strange to this tight Jewish community as lots of the people in society out there who haven't got a clue what goes, to think, to think, to think church is some strange, mysterious private club. I remember when my wife and I were, and we would, been, we'd been to church as, as well, teenagers and young people. I, I left in rebellion when I was 14, but she carried on. But when we had the tragedy of losing our first son and she was heartbroken, she wanted to go to church. We went to the local Baptist church. I remember that we went through this church and, and in this strange phenomenon called a Sunday morning service, which was totally irrelevant to where we were. They, all we could think of was opening and closing the windows and fiddling around, and no one spoke to us, and when it was all over, we left. And, and I thought, well, if that's Christianity, you can keep it. Now, that, that's how I responded to typical, average, denominational church life. Now the question is, are we going to make all these new believers like us so that we don't have our present pattern of traditions interfere with or does God want something different? Now this is the issue that's facing the church here. And if you read through Acts 15, you get some pretty strong opinions in all directions. Like verse 5, some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed. So they were believers, but they still carried all their Pharisaical trappings into their new faith in Jesus. They said it's necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. And others were, and then you get Peter, you get um, the Apostle Paul testifying to what they saw God do to these Gentiles, which didn't seem to fit in with that picture. And the big debate goes on, the elders, we read, and the apostles met together to consider the matter. And uh, it says in that in verse 6, and uh, then um, Peter, who's had this revelation, he says, now why, verse 10, why do you put God to the test by putting a, a yoke on the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. In other words, maybe these Gentiles have got it right. Because they simply are believing in being saved by Jesus without all the religious trappings. You get the feeling that Peter would rather be one of them than be what he was by his natural tradition and upbringing. Now, these things are very relevant to where we are. Because I believe one of several things. I believe that we're going to see, through David's tabernacle, we're going to see a mighty harvest of people that have had nothing to do with church. And we're going to have to learn how to live with them. And maybe we need to go a long way in their direction rather than requiring them to come to where we are. That's what Peter's basically saying here. The second thing which I think is so very, very important is that I know, I know, I know, one of the reasons why we're raising up David's tabernacle, it's going to be the means by which the Jewish people are going to come pouring into the kingdom of God. And this is what Amos prophesies, we're going to see this later on, and this to me is another great reason why God's raising up the tabernacle of David at this time. It's to make preparation for an influx of Jews that's going to be so incredible that we who've never really had close contact, I have, but some haven't, we're going to have to learn how to handle it the other way as well. And I tell you, we better be flexible in these days. What's going to emerge is something different that perhaps we've never ever known before. But it's going to be absolutely biblical, so don't get scared. But let's make sure it's biblical and not traditional. I had a... a 
a leader of a very, I won't say which, but a very, very prominent denomination, sound evangelical, Holy Spirit-filled denomination. He said this to me just a little while ago. He said, it's all right for you. He said, you can just obey the Bible, but we have our traditions to maintain. That's a Pentecostal denomination, a very large worldwide movement. That's one of what their leaders said to me. We can't just obey the Bible because we've got our traditions to maintain. And that's happened in just a few decades, beloved. I thought, dear Lord. Well, beloved, we're going to learn that David's tabernacle deals with these issues, and we're going to have to be prepared to deal with them too. So as this hot potato is flung into the hands of James, and you will notice, by the way, that they didn't have a deacon's meeting about it, or an elders' meeting about it, or even a committee of apostles. Now, they all contributed to the wisdom, but finally the decision was in the hands of one man, James. Now, the Bible doesn't explain why or how James, the brother of Jesus, was suddenly appointed to this position, but it's very clear from a number of scriptures that he was that James had the final headship of the church in Jerusalem. That there was one man who had that responsibility, although he was assisted by leadership that gave him counsel and advice, finally he had the executive power to say, this is my judgment. That's what he actually says. This is my judgment. I've listened to the counsel of the apostles. I've listened to the counsel of the elders. I've heard the expert opinions from different uh, pressure groups in the church. Most of all, I've cried out to God and I've heard the Holy Spirit speak to me. And then the Holy Spirit showed me this scripture. And now because he showed me this scripture, I know what the answer is. Now, so in Acts 15, we have a perfect pattern of how we resolve these sort of difficulties. And it's not my subject in this conference, but we need to just take note on the way. That's how you deal with these things. If God's given a father headship to someone, that father headship has the authority under God after consultation and through prayer and seeking the face of God and the word of God, he has a final responsibility to make decisions. Now, the good thing here was that what he decided, we're told, this is, I think, in verse 21, we're told that it was good, uh, verse 22, then it pleased the apostles and the elders with the whole church to send chosen men, I'm sorry, that's the wrong one, that's verse, I think it's, I want verse, hold on, You know, it is verse, it pleased the apostles elders, but the whole church, they sent men along with it. In other words, it was good to them all. Then we're told later on it was good to the whole church. We're told that when they received the word in, in the other churches, verse 31, they rejoiced over it with much encouragement. So it was a decision that everybody was pleased with. And everybody got in line and began to be obedient to. Hello. We've got a few things to learn in the United States. Haven't we? And it's in this setting that the Spirit of God speaks to James and tells him, come back a little bit in Acts chapter 15 to verses 16 and 17. This is the scripture. And with this the words of the prophet agree, just as it is written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. Now I'd like to take you for a moment, if I may, to Amos chapter 9, from which this is being quoted. And I'd like to just look at that in its context. Now at that time, it seemed that James felt led of God to emphasize the Gentile dimension of David's tabernacle, because that was the problem. God wants the Gentiles to come in, and you Jews better let them in and receive them as co-equal brothers with you. 
But if you go to Amos in chapter 9, um, I want you to come back a little bit, first of all, to, to verse 9. I, I'm just, I've told you earlier that Amos is written at a time when the, the nation of Israel had seen a lot of prosperity, had seen a lot of stability, they'd had a lot of peace, they'd expanded their borders economically, politically, and socially. They were at a pretty high level. And then when those things began to happen, they lost the sense of need of God and they began to backslide. And God starts to rebuke them with a few droughts, a few little warnings to say, look, you guys, have you noticed this in Texas lately? You know, don't turn from me. I'm the source of your prosperity. I'm the source of your blessing. So I don't want to have to come and judge you. So let me give you a few little smacks. So you need to turn back to the Lord. That's the setting here. But there's something rotten about the kingdom. There's something rotten about the way the kings operate. And after David, God found very, very few people. I think we could possibly name two that really pleased him, Hezekiah and Josiah. Everybody else was just a disgrace. And it seems now God's had enough. Because he, he makes this distinction, which I want you to see here, in verse 9. He says, I will command and I will sift the house of Israel among all nations, as grain is sifted in a sieve. Come back to verse 8, I'm sorry. Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are on the sinful kingdom. What kind of kingdom? A sinful, I will destroy it from the face of the earth, yet I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, says the Lord. What I'm going to do is I'm going to take the kingdom away from Israel, but I'm not going to destroy Israel. And it is a fact that after these words were spoken, very shortly after these words were spoken, the last king of Israel and Judah reigned, and after that there never was another king. Even after they came back out of their captivity, even right through the reign of the Maccabees, even though they had Herods come and were imposed by the Romans as vassal kings, they were never accepted or received by the people. And there never was another king because there's God's only king is on his way, he's coming. And he says, I'm going to save the nation in terms of its household but I'm, going, I'm not going to ever allow it again to become my kingdom. Now, that's picked up by Jesus. We're going to look at this later on during this week. When he says, the kingdom's taken from you, but it's given to a nation that will bring the fruits, bear the fruits thereof. Now, if God said this about Israel, just imagine what he's saying about the United States of America. And I tell you, I sense this. I hope you sense this. I sense this, that, that I am, I'm desperate to see revival come, not because it will be nice, but because this nation will not survive without revival coming. I hope you can feel the little smacks that God's giving to this nation. And I'm not saying he's the author of September. I'm saying that it was permitted. He couldn't put a, a wall of absolute protection around this nation because of the sin of this nation. In Texas, we got a lot of responsibility. Here in Texas, Roe versus Wade was passed, and now, now I don't know how many tens of millions of children have been murdered in, in America because of what we did in Texas. It was here in Texas that prayer was first stopped in the schools. This is where the law was first passed. And so many other things, it started here in Texas. And yet here we are, this is the Bible Belt, we're God-loving, but life is so prosperous and life is so comfortable and it's so nice that we've got kind of very iffy and half-hearted about our God. And we've tolerated so much sin. And, and I think, we think, to me, this is a wake-up call. And there's a cry in my heart, the Lord, I want, I want you to so visit this state and so visit our cities that they, they flow with the light and the glory of God. And Lord, I'm prepared to pay the price to make it happen. If it means I have to pray all night, I'm going to pray all night. If you have to fast, I'm going to fast. I, didn't, I was sent to this state by, by God, placed here in San Antonio by God, 
And I, with Eileen and many other wonderful people, we're put here as a team simply to see revival come. That's why we're here. It's not a hobby, it's my all-consuming passion. And what I'm saying about Texas, of course, applies to all over this nation, all over this continent of North America, and to many of the other nations that are represented here. And it's in that setting that, that God says these two things. He's going he's to, first of all, he's going to bring to an end wicked, sinful, kingly authority and replace it with divine, righteous, kingdom authority. And the means of doing it is the raising up of the tabernacle of David. That's the context in which this is spoken. And we're going to see in the next session today, we're going to see how it really happened in that first occasion of the tabernacle of David. But let's just go on and read these words at the end here. We know the, the words, we read them just now in Acts chapter 15. On that, verse 11, on that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David which has fallen down, I will repair its damages, I will raise up its ruins, and I will rebuild it as in the days of old. And here's the purpose of doing this, that the rest of the remnant, of, literally the best translation, the, re the rest of mankind, that's how it's translated in the New Testament, and that's I think the best translation in, even of the Old Testament. And all the Gentiles, or if you like, all the nations, all the ethnoi who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. So the first great purpose is a mighty ingathering of the Gentile believers, of the nations of the earth. Something mighty and incredible. That's the first thing. Let's move on to the next thing. And, th and then it, it goes on to say in verse 13, the days are coming when the ploughman shall overtake the reaper, the treader of grapes him will sow seed, the mountains will drip with, with sweet wine, and all the hills will flow. It will come to such a place that the harvesting will be, the next harvest will be ready before we finish reaping the last one. And you're going to have, you pastors are going to have some new problems. You're going to call up your pastor and say, look, I preached this morning, 3,000 people turned to the Lord. I can't handle them. Could you take 1,000? Instead of sheep stealing, it's going to be sheep giving away because we can't handle what we're getting. That's what's going to happen. That's what happened. Am I doing something wrong? Oh, I've got to, okay, I've got to stay back like a good boy. I want to get down your throat somewhere. <laughs> So that's, that's the first thing. Amen? The second thing, then, listen to this. I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. I will plant them in their land, and no longer shall they be pulled up. For the land I have, from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. So there is, if you like, David's tabernacle is also the fulfillment of what God intends to do for the Jews. Ethnic Israel in every way, it produces all that God's promised for everybody to come to conclusion. When you begin to grasp that, you begin to realize, hey man, we've got to get onto this thing. It's not, you see, it isn't just a place where we have great times with God, although it is that. Having intimacy with God in His presence has got more purpose than just having intimacy with God in His presence. There's an interaction between ourselves and Almighty God which changes us to such a degree that we then become the instrument for all these scriptures to be fulfilled. Now while it begins with that dimension, that is not an end in itself. Although it's often the motivation which drives people into David's tabernacle because they want to meet God and there's nothing wrong with that. But God will get you one way or the other. And when he's got you in his presence, when he's got you in intimacy, and when what are the passions of his heart begin to be transmitted into your heart, you begin to see things the way God sees them, and you, be, you begin to long for the same thing that God longs for, and then he can send you out in the fire and power of what is imparted to you to be the instrument of accomplishing what he wants to accomplish. So the outflow, can you see, the outflow is world-shaking. And it brings every scripture of what God's promised 
to fulfill his great purpose in the earth at the end of the age, David's tabernacle is right bang in the middle and central to the accomplishing of these purposes. And when you begin to see it, you say, hey, we've, we've got to have one in our city. Now, I believe that it will not be sufficient for an individual isolated church to try and do their own thing here. It may have to start that way, but the heart will have to be, this is for the whole city. This is for all the body of Christ in our community. This is for all the body of Christ in our community. Although it may only be one church that has the vision, it may only be one church that sets the thing up initially, they're all the time trying to draw the rest of the body in and say, look, this is not for us, it's for the whole city. And the reason I, you see, I think another thing that can hold us up is waiting too long for perfect unity before we try to start it. Well, we can't do anything until every pastor in our towns agreed. Beloved, you'll wait for eternity for that. <laughs> but it's not so much what you practically accomplish, but it's your heart and your disposition. I see a very good example. As I was praying over this, God took me back to Dr. David Yonggi Cho and his great church in Seoul, South Korea. We've had contact with that church for on and off for, for several decades now. And he really pioneered alone what God was showing him, which has many dimensions of David's tabernacle. The establishing of Prayer Mountain, which has been there for at least, at least 25, more like 30 years now. That has had an impact upon every church in that city. When he started, there weren't very many churches and they weren't very, well, they weren't very big. Now there are 4,000 churches in the city of Seoul, and many of them are over 100,000. His own church is somewhere around about 800,000 committed members. He's planted out many other churches. It began with five people and a praying mother-in-law, a bit like Eileen, if I can <laughs> say that respectfully. It was the passion of that lady which made it all happen in the spirit realm. He was the pastor of the church, but she, she oversaw and led that powerhouse, which is known all over the world now as Prayer Mountain. Where you get up to 10,000 people will be there for any length of time. There's no food served there, just water. It's assumed you've come to fast and, and, and to pray. And, uh, and people get there, Buddhists come there with their families and all their sick people. Incredible miracles take place all the time. The, power of that prayer mountain has held that nation politically from every assault from other nations. I remember being there in, I, th I think it was the first time, 1985, and it was a time when North and South Korea were in some tension. And I remember walking near the 38th parallel with an American colonel, and he spat on the ground. He said, he said it ain't the power of America that's keeping South Korea free. He said, it's the prayers of the saints. It's absolutely true. And so it becomes this great powerhouse for our city, for our region, but someone's going to have to start it. And I believe many of those people are sitting here in this conference. That's why God brought you here. Not just to get some good notes, hopefully you will, but to go and do something with it. Amen? Now, at the time that James quoted these words, halfway down page three, the tension was confusion over the Jewish-Gentile issue. And I say that this particularly applies today as God's getting ready to do something phenomenal amongst his ancient people. But I want us to move on now to the main purpose of raising up David's tabernacle. And I've got three things here, which I've sort of touched on already, but I want to put them in some sort of order. At the time that it was raised, in Acts chapter 15, 
The main purpose was to resolve the Jewish-Gentile tension within the church. That's what they saw as the main purpose. But when James quoted the scripture, he quoted God's main purpose, which was there should be a mighty, mighty release of evangelistic power amongst the unchurched and the unsaved. But if you go, as we will in a little while, to the first occasion, the raising up of David's tabernacle by David, what was his motivation? His motivation was he wanted God. He wanted the intimacy and the presence of God to be in the midst of the capital city which he was now king over. Can you see here that there are three different motivations and yet they all finally end up in the same place? David wanted God but did not know at that time, I believe, that by seeking the face of God in the tabernacle of David, he was going to receive power and authority to establish a mighty kingdom that was going to bring multi multitudes of people into the security and power of the kingdom of God. James was trying to resolve a delicate issue over the Jew-Gentile issue. That's where he started, but it ended up resolving that, but it also produced this incredible evangelistic thrust. So wherever you start, it seems God says, look, when you get near to me and start to be intimate, I'm going to show you my whole heart and my whole purpose. And I see those three major dimensions. It's a place of intimacy, a place where with unveiled face we behold, as in the mirror, the glory of the Lord. It's something absolutely incredible in terms of intimacy. It's something amazingly powerful in terms of evangelistic what's the word I want? Evangelistic success doesn't sound too good. I can't think of a better word. It's something that flows out from David's tabernacle that, that captivates people and brings them into the kingdom of God. It deals with demonic principalities and powers. It solves how Jews and Gentiles are all going to work together to fulfill the purpose of God. There's a verse which you may be familiar with at the end of Isaiah chapter 19. You might like to read it after this meeting's over. And it tells us this. Perhaps I think we'll turn to it and just read it. Won't take a moment. Look at this scripture and you tell me how on earth is this ever going to be fulfilled? Isaiah chapter 19. Come into verse 24. You there? In that day, Israel will be one of three with Egypt and Assyria. A blessing in the midst of the land. Can you, can you believe for that? Whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. We're told there's going to be a highway between them. They're going to love each other, work together. Now, the only way that's going to happen is when the tabernacle of David is raised up. When it is, we're going to see this fulfilled. So as far as the Middle East problem is concerned, to me, raising up the tabernacle of David is the most powerful instrument that God can use to bring about his purpose. I hope this is going in to you. I hope you can see this. It's not just that we get a bigger church in our town, although that will happen or we even make Texas a nicer place to live in, although that will happen. Even though America turns back from its backsliding and becomes God's divine instrument on the face of the earth, and all our resources are used now to forcefully advance the kingdom, that will happen. But whatever there is wrong in the world anywhere, it's going to be solved by the raising up of David's tabernacle. Total enemies like Assyria, Egypt and Israel are going to be one. Now, man, that, that blows my mind. But I can see how it will happen, because that's what Amos was prophesying. It's not good diplomacy. It's something supernatural happening in the heavenlies. 
that when we all come running into the kingdom and come running in, to become worshippers of the living God without any restrictions or hindrances on that intimacy, when that life flows in us and flows out through us, we're going to find that there's, there's a tremendous joining of us together in the most amazing power, the most amazing unity, and the most amazing authority, and there won't be a demon anywhere that can stand the power of that thing. Amen. Now just bring, go on to the next page. I'm looking for some time somewhere. I don't know. I just want to make this statement. If James had not heard from God and handled this situation with true apostolic wisdom, the kingdom of God would have been ripped apart into separate Jewish and Gentile camps right at the beginning. It, the kingdom would have become divided against itself and would not have been able to stand. His decision was good to the apostles, to the elders of the whole church, and when it was released to these Gentile churches, they were much, much encouraged. To understand why the Holy Spirit quoted Amos 9, 11 to 12 at that time, we need to go back to the historic events surrounding the raising up of the first tabernacle of David and we need to learn its lessons. We also need to learn the lessons that apply as the tabernacle was raised up in the days of the early church because extra things were added there. We then need to hear and learn how these lessons apply today and we need to receive any new things the Spirit wants to teach us today for the first time. Now, you've got to be ready for new things. Thank you. You've got to be ready for new things. One of the things, I'll just give you a little hint of this. Um, it just is hinted at in Matthew 21, but it's going to become a phenomenon here. That is, one of the things about David's tabernacle, because when Jesus came into the temple for one day, he temporarily turned it into David's tabernacle. What happened on that one day? I'm going to explain this more fully later was that, among other things, we find children abandoned in extravagant praise and worship. And that was the one thing that ticked the scribes and the Pharisees off. That's what it says. They became indignant. It wasn't the adults, it was the kids doing this stuff that blew their fuses. And I tell you, right around the world, right now, and I'm privileged to touch various nations, the thing that staggers me is what God is beginning to reveal and do through children. Now, there's a little hints of it here and there in America, but in many respects we're way behind on this. And if it's one thing that we ought to be leading the field in, it's this particular area. It's not enough to get kids to colour quietly in colour books. They should be filled with passion for Jesus, prophesying, laying their hands on the sick, seeing mighty miracles. I tell you, kids of 10, 11 and 12, they really get thrilled with this kind of stuff. Yeah. And they can stay in God's presence for hours without getting a bit tired. I'll never forget my experience in Sarajevo, that torn, shattered city with 85% unemployment, a Muslim city. And there there's a whole bunch of children being gloriously saved by one evangelistic gypsy lady and she's got about 200 kids saved, ranging in age from about 6 to about 17. I've never met kids like this in all my life. I, I, I tell you, I was just blown away by what I saw happen. I'll tell you a bit more about that probably tomorrow or the day after tomorrow. It's beginning to happen here in the United States. And it's something new. We, we haven't got any parameters for this kind of thing. There's nothing in any of our traditions that allows children this kind of place to function and move in the power of God. I don't just mean to do a little children's item. I mean to be right there receiving revelation from God and moving comfortably with their adult, uh, uh, whatever you want, parents and, and, and other members, just moving as a recognized member of the body of Christ. And, and I think the days of separate children's meetings, well, they may have their purpose, for certain things, but I tell you, when we come together as a worshipping body, they're just going to want to be in the midst of all this. I can remember years and years ago in a, in a, a town in India called Manmad, God visited that tragic 
orphanage with hundreds of kids there in these orphanages and the power of God swept through that orphanage and I'll never forget nine-year-olds pleading to be allowed into this supposedly adult meeting and when they came in they just took the place over with their exuberance and their joy and their, they, none of them had ever known a natural father the spirit of God fell upon them and they were crying out in Marathi oh my daddy my daddy my daddy and all their longings for a daddy were being gloriously fulfilled by the Holy Spirit there were, there were dozens and dozens of those children which were congenitively deaf. Every one of them was spontaneously healed. There wasn't one deaf person left in that whole, whole site. And I tell you, as we get, we're going to see incredible things happen. And I haven't got a clue what's going to happen, but I'm ready for anything. And I trust that you are. All right. Let's just move on. It says this in 1 Corinthians 10. We're going to keep quoting this, so you might as well get used to it. All these things happen to them as what? As examples. Or the word is typos, they're types or shadows. And they were written for our admonition, for our warning or instruction. And it particularly upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So there's a special way which is applied to those that are privileged to be that end time church. Do you believe you're part of that church? It particularly applies to us. And we've got lots and lots of new things to learn and lots and lots of new exciting things to do which we've never seen or done before. Well, we're within a few minutes of a break, so I'm going to suggest we have a break. And then we're going to come back and I want to look at the raising of David's tabernacle at the beginning and the lessons that we should learn from it. So we'll have a break now until...